Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Gaudete. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 13, 2015. The third Sunday of Advent is traditionally called Gaudete, or Rejoice Sunday. Gaudete in Domino Semper, St. Paul writes in this week's lectionary, Rejoice in the Lord always. In many churches, the penitential purple of the season is put aside this weekend in favor of a lighter, happier rose. Most of the lectionary readings emphasize celebration, anticipation, and joy. Sing aloud, the prophet Zephaniah instructs us. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Shout, proclaim, and sing for joy, says the prophet Isaiah. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, and make known his deeds among the nations. I don't know about you, but I find these exhortations difficult. In part, the problem is linguistic. Rejoice and exult are churchy words, words I don't hear in regular life, so I feel clumsy around them. Joy itself is a word so overused in America's commercialization of Christmas, I find it opaque. As for proclaiming, shouting, or singing aloud, not so much. I'm not a proclaimer. I'm shy, introverted, and happiest when I'm quiet. I don't even know what shouting for joy would look like. But the texts for this week present other challenges. Gaudete is the word's imperative form. We are commanded to rejoice. Really? Even on my best days, I hate being told what to feel. Rejoice, sing praises, shout. No, my inner two-year-old screams, stomping her foot and crossing her arms. I will not. And that's on good days. What about bad days? How are we supposed to rejoice when our hearts are breaking? What songs of gladness should we sing when despair, exhaustion, or terror darkens our lives? Do these readings advocate pretense, inauthenticity? I don't have satisfying answers to these questions, so I spent a lot of time this week brooding. Luckily, the lectionary didn't leave me high and dry. Just as I was about to attempt a forced anodyne essay on Advent joy, boom, I delved into the gospel reading. Cue John the curmudgeonly Baptist, the bearded killjoy of Christmas. You brood of vipers, he shouts across the wilderness in the Gospel of Luke, clearly having skipped class the day his homiletics professor lectured on cuddly sermon openings. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits worthy of repentance? How this austere reading made its way into the lectionary for Gaudete Sunday is beyond me, but I'm not complaining. No one has ever called me a viper before, and I have to confess, I'm curious, maybe even relieved. At last, hard words for hard lives. Nothing saccharine, nothing I might scrawl across a Hallmark card or stuff into a gift box. You brood of vipers, repent, bear fruit, wake up. According to St. Luke, great crowds streamed into the desert to get yelled at by John. Why? Why were they willing, no, eager, to hear his fire and brimstone preaching? What attracted them? The first clue lies in the question they asked John at the conclusion of his sermon. What should we do? That's not a question people ask when things are going well. It's the question we ask when we've come to the ends of ourselves, when the received wisdom has failed, when our cherished defenses are down, when our lives are splitting at the seams. It's what we ask when we're weary, bored, disillusioned, or desperate. What should we do? John's answer provides our second clue. Imagine him, if you will, a wild beast of a man, ascetic and rough, dressed in camel's hair and fueled by locusts, his very appearance bespeaks the margins. What do the crowds think such a fringe character would say in answer to their question? 
abandon your homes and families, dwell in the desert, reject your culture, start a revolution? Given John's demeanor, the crowds might very well have expected such radicalism. But the answer he gave them was even more radical, so radical we stand in danger of missing it. What should you do? You should go home. Go home to your families, your neighbors, your vocations, your colleagues. Stop fleeing. Stop insisting that God is somewhere else, somewhere far away from the grit and sweat of your nights and days. Inhabit the stuff of your lives as deeply and as generously as you can. Your Messiah is closer than you think. Inhabit your life, no matter how plain, how obscure, how unglamorous. Why? Because the holy ground that matters most is the ground beneath your feet. Wait, is that really what John said? It is. Think about it. To the tax collectors, he said, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. To the mercenaries, don't extort money by threats or false accusations. Be satisfied with your wages. To the Pharisees and Sadducees, don't allow your religious heritage to make you arrogant or complacent. To everyone who had anything, you have gifts to give. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Share. What John was daring to suggest to his listeners is that holiness is not the ethereal and mysterious thing we tend to make it. If we're willing to look closely, if we're willing to believe that nothing in our lives is too mundane or secular for God, then we'll understand that all the possibilities for salvation we need are embedded in the lives God has already given us. There is no outside. We don't have to look out there. The kingdom of heaven is here, within and among us. Which means we have work to do. Work so ordinary it will almost definitely disappoint us. I wonder how those tax collectors felt the next time they headed out to collect money. Wait, God's kingdom is here? Here in this hated profession? Here among people who just as soon spit in my face as pay me what they owe me? God cares how I live. Here? The gospel writing, gospel writer called John's exhortation good news. Well, it can be. If you've believed in your secret heart that your life, your family, your heritage, your vocation, your future, is outside the purview of God's saving goodness, then what John has to say is good news indeed. Your life is infinitely dear. Nothing in it is beyond redemption. Nothing. On the other hand, if you long to flee, if the life you have is not the life you want or even want to want, then John's good news might feel like a stab to your soul. I won't lie. I come to this passage with ambivalence. I feel relief, but I also feel sorrow. Some days I'm ready to inhabit my life in the ways John suggests. Some days, all I want to do is run. There's no need to be surprised by this. God isn't. After all, we're in the desert now. We've left cheap cheer behind. This is joy for grown-ups. John concludes his sermon in the wilderness with a harrowing description of the coming Messiah. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Are you squirming yet? How is this good news, this portrait of a Jesus who judges, sorts, and burns us? I wonder if I squirm because I misconstrue the meaning of judgment. I tend to equate judgment with condemnation. But in fact, to judge something is to see it clearly, to know it as it truly is. In my dictionary, synonyms for judgment include discernment, acuity, sharpness, and perception. What if John is saying that the Messiah who is coming really sees us, that he knows us at our very core? Maybe the winnowing fork is an instrument of deep love, patiently wielded by the one who discerns in us rich harvests still hidden by chaff. Maybe it's an offering God, 
every particular of our lives, that we give him permission to clear us, to separate all that's destructive from all that is good, beautiful, and priceless. I called John the Baptist a curmudgeon, but here's an ironic little fact. He is the patron saint of spiritual joy. He was still a fetus when he first leapt at the presence of Mary and Jesus. He rejoiced at the sound of his bridegroom's voice. When it was time for him to decrease so that Jesus could increase, he did so willingly, saying, My joy is now full. Clearly John understood something hard and flinty about joy. Joy is not sentiment. Joy is not happiness. Joy will cost you. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, Jesus told the crowds who flocked to him in the Judean wilderness. Bear fruit. Bring it forth. But also, bear it. Carry it. Shoulder it. Endure it. Your life is a golden field, ripe for sacred fire. Yes, the fire will hurt, but the one who wields the flame is trustworthy. He knows you. He sees you. He will gather you. Gaudete. For books this week, we review Michael Walter's The Paradox of Liberation, Secular Revolutions and Religious Counter-Revolutions. How do we explain the recurring and disturbing paradox, asks Michael Walter, that secular revolutions of national liberation based upon Western ideals like democracy and modernization are often followed in short order by fundamentalist religious counter-revolutions that in many ways are their exact opposite. Why do the early successes of liberation from foreign rule give way to religious revivalism that subverts the original goals? Walzer, a leading political theorist of our time, has written about this phenomenon for 20 years, and some of the material in this book has appeared in previous publications. But after delivering the Henry L. Stimson lectures at Yale in 2013, he revised and expanded the material into this present book. To explore this question, Walter considers three case studies, Israel, India, and Algeria. Here we have three different countries with three different religions, but in each case, with important differences, about 20 to 30 years after independence or liberation, the newly secular state was challenged by resurgent religious fundamentalism. Hindu militants, ultra-Orthodox Jews, and Messianic Zionists, and Islamic radicals. The backwardness came back, he writes. The secular liberation hasn't been defeated, but it has faced unexpected and complex challenges. Walter doesn't argue that this pattern is universal. Obviously, three case studies is a small data set. One can think of exceptions that don't fit his theory, as he does in a brief postscript on the United States. Critics have cautioned him not to overstate the similarities and ignore the differences in his three examples. Nonetheless, he asks, why have the leaders and militants of secular liberation not been able to consolidate their achievement and reproduce themselves in successive generations? The goal isn't to negate, ban, or abolish traditional religious worldviews, but to engage them. Others have worked to retrieve a liberationist tendencies within their own religious traditions. Marx might have been right about many things but so far he has been badly wrong to predict that religion would wither away. Political liberationists ignore this reality at their peril. For films this week, we review Beats of the Antonov. In 2011, Sudan fragmented into the Christian Republic of Southern Sudan and the Muslim Republic of Sudan in the north. Stranded on the borderlands between the two were the many indigenous peoples of the Nuba Mountains and the Blue Nile. Some of these people are Christians, others are Muslims, but above all, they are considered blacks who are decidedly African and therefore non-Arabic by the Khartoum government, but has bombed them in an effort, doomed to fail, to nationalize over 50 major ethnic groups into a single Muslim-Arabic cultural identity. Indigenous music and dance feature prominently in this film as powerful ways and means that people reaffirm their unique identities. 
My identity can be read through the notes, says one refugee. In the bitter irony, one refugee observes that instead of nationalizing the many ethnic groups, the bombings actually reinforce the cultural distinctives of the tribes. The title of the film comes from the regular bombings by the northern government in their Soviet-made Antonov planes. The Sudanese filmmaker Hajuj Kuka lived among these people for two years to film their struggles in the Civil War. I watched this film for free on the PBS website and its Point of View series. And finally, for poems this week, we have Denise Levertov's On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart, not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike, God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve and trusts, as guest, as brother, the word. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 13, 2015, the third week of Advent. I'm Debbie Thomas.